This passage is Numbers 16, 1 to 25. Korah, son of Izzah, the son of Korath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan, Abraham, and Elab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and his followers, in the morning, the Lord will show you who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and has brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near him. But now you are trying to get the priesthood too. Is it against the Lord... It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned David, Abraham, and the sons of Elab. But they said, We will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up and out of the land flung with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into the land of flowing with milk and honey or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took their censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood up and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the glory of God appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourself from the assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell down, face down, fell face down and cried, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abram, and the elders of the Israel followed him. 
he warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them or you will be swept away because of their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan and Abraham. Dathan and Abraham had come out where they were standing with their wives, children and little ones at the entrances of their tents. Then Moses said, This is how you will know the Lord has sent me to do these things, and it was not my idea. If these men die of natural causes and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying this, the ground underneath them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all the, those associated with Korah, together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And a fire came out from the Lord. The fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Well, you might be forgiven for wondering what possessed me to pick such a passage for Father's Day. And for that matter, what's a story like this doing in the Bible at all? Uh, maybe that explains why this, this story is often avoided. Hands up if you've ever heard a sermon on this passage before, ever. We have one person, once. Okay. Well, we're in this today because we've been working our way through this part of the Bible, the Old Testament book of Numbers. And despite any misgivings we may have, I hope you'll see in the end it's helpful and it's very relevant, in fact, for Father's Day. But it's hard to get past that shocking and horrific image in our minds of those families falling into the earth with their little ones. We want to ask, what right has the Lord in doing such a thing? That question, what right has the Lord, um, what, does he ha what right does he have to do what, what he wants? When you think about it, that's exactly what Korah himself was asking because the whole episode is presented as a leadership challenge to Moses, but really it's a leadership challenge to the Lord, questioning the Lord's right in appointing Moses as leader in the first place. And emotionally, at least, this is what we may think of God when we approach this story. What right does the Lord have to be God over us if this is the sort of thing that he's gonna do? Back in um, 2013, I was in India and uh, was talking with a, Christian community leader there, and he told me that this very thing had actually happened only 10 years before in central India, when in a seismic event, the ground literally opened up and closed around a whole village. Absolutely horrific. What is it with the Lord? Twice, in verses 26 and 45, if you've got your um, Bibles or phones, devices open, number 16, Twice in verses 16, 26 and 45, the Lord tells Moses, get away from the assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. We wonder, is God overreacting? Has he woken up on the wrong side of the bed? Has he had a bad day? Why is he so angry here? 
It's hard not to think, isn't it? God, you've, you've gone too far. Hard not to say, you've set yourself above us. Hard not to sort of pose our own leadership challenge, exactly like Korah and Moses, Korah and his followers did to Moses. Listen to Korah's words. He says, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? Now, you might recognize something very familiar about that complaint. It's very egalitarian, isn't it? It's very Australian. It's the sort of thing that Australians might say about God. You've gone too far when a disaster strikes on innocent people. Or the whole community is holy, every one of them, every person is uniquely special, you see. The Lord is with them. There's a bit of God in everyone, isn't there? And so why do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? Why rule our lives in a harsh way? I think this challenge really resonates deeply with us, actually, in the way we think. And yet here at the same time, the Lord is speaking to us and he's wanting to teach us. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me for humility as we come to this. Let's pray quickly. Father, please grant us the humility and patience to listen, to learn, not to switch off, but to engage, because we do want to hear your message to us through this chapter. Please help us. Amen. Okay, uh, there are three responses to the leadership challenge in the passage. There's one from Moses and Aaron, then from Korah and his followers, and then from the Lord himself. Three responses. The first response is the model response. That's from Moses and Aaron. And the model response is to fall face down. It happens three times. Verse four, when Korah and the group of Israel's leaders confront, confront Moses, Moses falls face down. In verse 22, the Lord tells Moses and Aaron to separate themselves from Korah and his followers so that he can destroy, him, destroy them. What happens? Moses falls face down. And he intercedes, he pleads for them because he knows this coup's really against the Lord and a fire or plague are imminent. So he falls face down and he intercedes. And then thirdly, it happens again in verse 45 where the Lord tells Moses to get away from the whole Israelite community so that he can destroy them. And again, Moses with his brother falls face down. So they fall face down. They get something which... Korah and his followers, and I'm, I'm thinking, we don't get. They fear the Lord. They know who they're dealing with. They know that the Lord is holy. Remember the burning bush? Take off your sandals, Moses. The ground you're standing on is holy. The Lord is holy, and yet he's personal. At the burning bush, the Lord reveals to Moses his name, and he says, I've seen the misery of my people. You know, um, he's heard their cries. He's been concerned about their suffering. He's decided then to rescue them and bring them into a land flowing milk and honey. He's personal, even though he's holy. You know, no cosmic force out there does these things. Doesn't see, doesn't hear, not concerned, not decides. He's personal. He's no distant, uncaring God. So he's holy, yet he's personal, and then thirdly, he's to be feared throughout all the earth. That's why he raised up Pharaoh and brought the plagues, Exodus chapter nine, verse 16, so that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth, he says. Moses knew that of all the people on earth, they, the Israelites, 
They should especially fear the Lord. I mean, if the whole earth should fear the Lord, they especially should do it because the Lord had chosen them to be his people. And what's the first commandment he gives them? I am the Lord your God. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You've got to fear me. Have no other gods before me, he said. They were his. That's why they should fear him. That's why the Lord's jealous when he gets disregarded, discarded, treated with contempt. Moses gets this. The Lord is someone to be feared. He's not just to be cast aside. He's not to be treated like a nobody or just with casual indifference. He is to be feared. He's the Lord God. Meaning, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to love him for who he is, to love and revere him. That he is holy, he is awesome, he is mighty, he is personal, he is relational. Moses knows the Lord is good. The Lord revealed his character, his name to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and yet forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Moses gets who the Lord is. That's why he falls down. Everyone else has forgotten. He he hasn't forgotten. Korah's disregard for Moses is a backhanded slap to the Lord who appointed Moses. And Moses knows given who the Lord is, this is not something you do. So Moses falls face down because he fears the Lord. What about Korah and his followers? What's their response? Well, as is the usual case when people take issue with leaders, uh, there are those who grasp after power, who think they'd do a better job if they're in the hot seat. And then there's those who just want to grumble. There's the graspers and there's the grumblers, right? Well, first of all, there's Korah and the 250 Levitical leaders. They're grasping after the priesthood. And then there's the Reubenites, led by Dathan and Abiram. They're grumble, grumbling against Moses' record of leadership, the graspers, the grumblers. Korah grasps after the priesthood, even though he himself was a Levite. Special clan, right, within the tribes of Israel. Even though... He was of a special clan within that tribe. He could carry the ark of God. Not all the Levites could do that. He was special. And yet even though that was the case, he wasn't a priest because only Moses and Aaron and Aaron's family line, only they could be priests, right, within the Levitical tribe. We think, well, why couldn't Korah be a priest if he wanted to? Didn't he have the right to be a priest? No, he didn't have a right to be a priest. The vocation of priest wasn't something that appeared in your average Israelite career guide. It wasn't a uni open day option, you know, you could go for. The priesthood itself was a gift from God to his people. It was part of the system he set up which enabled him to dwell with his people. Um, It was a safety system, really, (laughs) for the people. And it was his right, the Lord's right, to decide who would be priests. And he'd made it clear, for whatever reason, it's his prerogative, that it was to be Moses and particularly Aaron and Aaron's descendants who were to be the priests. So when this means that when when Korah rebels against this, even though it sounds so plausible, he's bringing with him 250 other democratically elected leaders 
and would-be priests, well-regarded members of the community, sounds so good, sounds like he's got the numbers, he's worked the caucus, you know, he's, he's got the people on site. Even though it sounds so plausible, in fact, he is staging rebellion against the Lord himself in verse 11, it says that. So there are the graspers. What about the grumblers? Well, they grumbled about Moses' legitimacy as a leader and their hatred for Moses is so strong that when Moses summons them to come and speak to him, they just refuse to come. The audacity of it, they point blank, just say no. They're sitting in their tents, they send a message back to Moses, we've rejected your leadership, we reject your wisdom as leader, and then they employ spin. They rewrite the story, they rewrite history, they change the narrative to skew things against Moses. You may have picked it up, verse, verse 13. They say, isn't it enough, Moses, that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert? Did you get it, the spin? Egypt wasn't the land flowing with milk and honey. Canaan, where they were going to, was, that was the land flowing with milk and honey. They were slaves in Egypt, right? So they rewrite the narrative. And then they say, verse 14, moreover, you, Moses, haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. And again, we think, duh, were you even there last week? You know, Moses brought you up into the land to enter it, but you refused to go in. It was your faithlessness. It's not Moses' fault that you ended up in the desert. You hear the spin? Moses took us away from Egypt, that was our promised land. It's Moses' fault, not ours, that we're, in the, we're not in the promised land. They've rewritten history. And so you've got two groups of people. You've got the graspers, you've got the grumblers. They're both different, but what, what unites them is their opposition to Moses and to the Lord. Okay, so that's their response. Now, what is the Lord's response going to be? Well, we've heard it, it's immediate, it's severe, and it's entirely fitting to both groups of people, the graspers and the grumblers. To the graspers who wanted the priesthood, the Lord says, okay, well, let's try it out. If you think you're acceptable to me as priests, you give it a go. Tomorrow, you be priests. Take a sensor, that, you know, a sort of metal bowl on a chain, put fire, like coals in it, and, and incense in them, and then appear before me at the entrance to the tent of meeting inside the tabernacle, where you're not normally allowed to go. You just try. Moses and Aaron will do it too, and the man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. Now, we should be nervous at this point. We know from chapter three when two of Aaron's sons made offerings to the Lord with unauthorized fire, the fire of the Lord came out and consumed them. Two of his four sons. So there's Korah with the 250 oozing bravado and arrogance. We are nervous about the outcome. And then in verse 18, the next day, each man took his censer, put fire and incense in it. Korah's there with his 250 followers. There's Moses and Aaron. Everyone has their censer. There's massive amounts of smoke and clouds of incense going up. It would have been a magnificent sight. But that is nothing compared to what now appears because with this, the tension rises significantly. The Lord himself appears and he tells Moses and Aaron to separate themselves from the assembly. The glory of the Lord is there. Korah moves to his tent wisely because in verse 35 we read, 
the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. This is a terrible punishment, but it is fitting. They presume to offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, and they themselves get consumed by fire from the Lord. It's a judgment tailor-made for their particular sin. They thought they'd simply stroll up before the Lord and live without the mediator God had put in place. They thought they didn't need a mediator. Well, they do. Correction, they did, as do we. Now, for us, our mediator, it's Jesus. Jesus, he is our priest. We need him. For them, it was Aaron, the priest appointed by the Lord. And to settle this matter once and for all in the eyes of the community, if you were to read ahead to chapter 17, there the Lord takes Aaron's staff and he puts it inside the tent of meeting with staffs from the other um, tribes. Next day, miraculously, Aaron's staff has budded with almond blossoms that are springing out from it. It's disconnected to the ground, right? <laughs> okay. And it remained in blossom as a constant sign to the Israelites that the priesthood belonged to the one the Lord picked. Right? Aaron. So the Lord deals with the graspers. But then there's the grumblers, Dathan and Abiram, and now Korah, the likely ringleader of both groups. They complained that because of Moses' leadership, the earth would totally swallow themselves and their families instead of them swallowing the produce of the earth. And then we know what happens. The earth opens up and totally swallows them and their families, leaving no trace of their lives behind, no servants, no children, nothing. It's an awful judgment, and yet it fits their complaint to a T. And now there's no question that Moses was the man appointed by God as leader, and by the end of chapter 17, the leadership challenges, they're now done and dusted. Everyone knows God has made Moses the leader, God has made Aaron the priest. Okay, that's the story. It leaves us with two outstanding issues. What about the little ones? And is the Lord someone we should be afraid of? Okay, first of all, what about the little ones? The chapter beforehand sets the context. Chapter 15 says, anyone like Korah who sins defiantly against the Lord will die in the end. So atonement can be made for unintentional sins, but the intentional defiant rebellion, no. We think, hang on, but what about the children, right? The innocents, surely God wouldn't punish those who are innocent for the sake of another man's sin. Now that was Moses' question about the 250 led by Korah. Will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? They're innocent, aren't they? They're ignorant, they're, they're just easily led. But in verse 38, the Lord says, actually those 250 men weren't innocent, they sinned at the cost of their lives. They weren't innocent. Yes, but what about the children, right? What can we say? Well, the Bible's very clear. Children will never be put to death for the sins of their parents to atone for their parents' sins. Uh, that was a feature of Canaanite religion, the, the land that they're about to go into. Well, 
would, would go into in 40 years. That's what they practiced over there, child sacrifice, but the Lord would never do something abhorrent. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for their own sin. So no child has to do for their parents what Jesus did for us. No child has to atone for their parents' sin, okay? But having said that, Children do often bear the consequences of the sins of their parents, especially in the matter of a parent's regard for the Lord. So second commandment against idolatry, right? When we parents commit idolatry, when we swap the Lord in our hearts for something else to worship, he's jealous. And he says he will punish the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now that is sobering, isn't it? Uh, To think that our regard for the Lord could have not just impact on our children, but on our grandchildren and perhaps our great-grandchildren. Now I think intuitively we know how this works. As parents, we make thousands of decisions which directly impact our children for good or for ill. How I drive my car when my kids are in it has a direct impact on their well-being. You know the Goodwood, uh, the, the train crossing on Crossroad, you know, ding, 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 ding. Once we were in traffic and it was moving and I was in the Tarago and the kids were in the back and then I, th- I thought the traffic was going to keep moving but it just stopped and ding, 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 it all started flashing but I wasn't through. Oh my goodness. The kids are in the back. This is like my worst nightmare. And thankfully, the traffic edged up and you know, by the time the boom gate, we were just through. I thought, I'm gonna be that story. My kids, they're, they're, they're strapped in. We make lots of decisions where our kids are impacted um, for good or for ill, what we let them watch on television, what we read to them, where we take them, who we worship together. And when they're with us, especially when they're little, their lives are completely shaped by us. We determine everything, or almost everything, for them. They just come along with us. In the story today, what differentiated the children who perished from the ones who didn't? It was entirely which family they belonged to. Actually, it was which dad they had. It was whether their dad was arrogant before the Lord or whether he was humble. So you see the application for dads on Father's Day, right? Our kids need us to be humble before the Lord. When they're little, their status in the eyes of God depends on our status, our standing before the Lord. Their spiritual well-being, especially when they're young, depends upon us. And the Lord has given responsibility to parents to grow them, not just to keep them alive, that's good, (laughs) but to grow them up and make them flourish to be the people that God made them to be, which includes their faith. But he's given the spiritual responsibility particularly to the dads, not that mums don't have any, of course they have huge involvement, but ultimately it's the dads. Now my guess is that every Christian dad here wants to grow their children in the knowledge and love of God, but most dads now are feeling immensely guilty Uh, Because we remember our failures, don't we? 
Thanks for beating me up on Father's Day, Chris. You know, <laughs> I came to church, I wanted encouragement. You know, we can think of a thousand things we haven't done, can't we? And we can rack ourselves with guilt, but I think we can help each other, and, and I can show you, and we will, just in a moment. But before I do, we need to come to the second issue because it's a live one. Should we be afraid of the Lord? And the answer is, well, maybe we should. Because it depends on where you stand with him. We've already in the story had two moments of judgment, the earth opening and closing, fire from the Lord. But the story isn't over because incredibly, after all that's happened, the next day the whole Israelite community come and grumble again against Moses and Aaron. You think, don't do that. They say, you've killed the Lord's people. (laughs) Don't do that. Once again, the cloud of God's glory appears. Once again, the Lord tells Moses and Aaron, step aside so we can put an end to them at once. For the third time, Moses and Aaron hit the deck face down because here's now the whole community doing a Korah, a deliberate, defiant, intentional sin against the Lord. You read the chapter before, unintentional sins can be atoned for, not intentional, defiant sins like this. But that's an issue for us, isn't it? Isn't that what we've all done? At one point or other, actually at many points, haven't, haven't you done this, haven't, haven't I? Sinned deliberately, consciously, willfully, defiantly against the Lord? Who can say the only sins I've ever done have been unintentional? Okay. Now what do you do if you're in a relationship with a holy God and you've deliberately sinned? Even if you turn to God at that point in repentance, how can you turn away the Lord's anger from you because of your guilt that's there? You can't. You can't turn away the Lord's anger. But guess what? A priest can. Because in verse 46, Moses says to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it, along with fire from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Moses did as Aaron said. He ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague that had already started among the people. But Aaron offered the incense and he made atonement for them. And listen to this, verse 48. He stood between the living and the dead. And the plague stopped. Now isn't that exactly what Jesus did at the cross? He stood there between the living and the dead. And he offered up himself to turn away God's anger. The atoning sacrifice, that's what that word means. He did it, it's staggering. The Lord in the Old Testament, if we read Numbers 15, he hadn't provided atonement for this kind of deliberate sin. But Aaron the high priest, by stepping in, he secures it. And the Lord accepts it. Should we be afraid of the Lord? Well, yes, if you do not know Jesus, if you haven't accepted him as your priest, you should be very afraid because without a mediator who's effective, we are goners. Numbers chapter 16, verse 49, but 14,700 people had died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Should you be afraid? Well, if you don't have a priest, absolutely. But if you do have Jesus, no, you shouldn't be afraid. 
At the cross, he offered up himself to turn away the Lord's anger from us onto him. He's the difference. He makes the difference between fearing the Lord, which we all have to do, and being afraid of the Lord, right? They are two separate things. Should you fear the Lord? Yes, you should, because of who he is, holy, mighty, eternal, the creator, the sustainer, the giver of life, the judge, relational, pure, undefiled. Yes, you should treat him as he is, right? Fear him, love him. But should you be afraid of the Lord? I wanna say you don't have to be. You don't have to be, not if you have Christ. If you think, I don't know if I have him, then get on your knees sometime today and just tell him, I need you, Lord Jesus. I need you in my life. I need you to be my priest. I need you to make things right. That's why he came. All right, dads, time to encourage each other. Our kids need us to encourage them to know God and to love him, and we can all think of things we haven't done or should do, but what's one thing that you have done or one thing that you do do? I asked this question of some dads over the last couple of days, and we're gonna hear from one another encouraging one another. Maybe in the list there's a new idea that you can do, okay? But I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna listen to you encourage us. Let's do it. Father in heaven, uh, what a sobering passage, but it's so important, and we thank you so much for it. Our loving God, we repent if we have not feared you as we ought. But we thank you so much for Jesus, our priest, who on the cross stood between the living and the dead and turned away your anger. We need him. And thank you because of him we do not need to be afraid of you. Father, for all the dads here and all the future dads, encourage them, encourage them and help them to persevere in loving you, in modeling to their children a real and lively faith. Please hear their prayers for their kids and please uh, grant them perseverance and joy in walking with you. And may their kids take notice. In Jesus' name, amen.